0: You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. For today's conversation, I'm joined by author and leadership development expert, Andrew O'Keefe. Andrew's focus is on human instincts, really what it means to be human and how those instincts affect how we work in our modern workplace in our conversation andrew gives a really quick overview of these instincts the ones he describes in his book hardwired humans but then we peel back the cover on a couple of those instincts to talk about how they are operating in the world of collaboration we talk about chimpanzees elephant seals and of course humans Please enjoy our conversation here on episode 17 of the Cool Collaborations podcast. Hello, Andrew. How are you? Very well, thank you, Scott. So where are you joining from today?
1: I'm joining from Sydney on the country, the traditional owners of the Wangal people. So if you come into Sydney Harbour, keep going past the Opera House, go under the Harbour Bridge, Keep going upstream and then on the southern side you uh, you're in the country of the wongul people and uh, on a lovely lovely
0: sunny Monday morning in sydney well i'm uh, I'm joining you from Western Canada, so it's Sunday afternoon my time so I'm happy to be catching you first thing first thing in the day on the first day of the week so you've built a whole career and and written a book a couple of books actually on this idea of of human instinct and how our human instincts aren't maybe suited for our sort of modern world. And I'm kind of curious if you could maybe describe a little bit about those instincts. What are they and and how do they show up and why are they important?
1: The first part of my career was in human resources roles within large organizations, in the mining, manufacturing industries, IBM for 10 years, companies like that. About halfway through my career, I noticed a uh, phenomenal thing that irrespective of whatever organisation or whatever sector or indeed whatever country, the same sort of challenges come up with the way people interact and in that case in the workplace. And attuned to what I was observing, I then came across a body of knowledge on human instincts, which is then the second part of my career was, has been really applying initially in internal HR roles trying to be the sort of leader I wanted to be, adding you know, value to the people who worked with me. And then, yeah, in the last 15 years or so in my own practice area, what does it mean to be human and how that can help us with our interactions in the way we go about our lives and the way we go about our work relationships? And so, yeah, the key the key concept is that through the long journey of human history, we've only recently moved into Certainly, workplaces and not much before that in urban settings. And that's no time at all to alter what it means to be human. And so, the instincts that served us well, that really became part of the human condition, still present themselves in our modern life and our modern work. And if we understand what those instincts are, then it gives us a framework and good decisions in relation to our people relationships.
0: So, is it? about managing the instincts themselves or just simply using them as a frame to understand how things are occurring?
1: Two things, it, it helps understand, it's a sense-making step, helps understand why we think and act the way we do and why that other person or the other group might think and act the way they do. And then the second step is, once we have a better explanation of behaviour or a phenomenon, then that helps us with our decisions,
0: can you describe what the framework is? Because you've laid out, I think in your book, is it nine sort of distinct instincts and some of how you got to those just to give a sense of kind of the journey that you went through to figure out <laughs> what they were and, and how you put them together in your own head.
1: Yeah. And, and so the credit I give to the body of knowledge or the way I entered my investigation in this body of knowledge is through Professor Nigel Nicholson from London Business School. And at that stage of my Career, I say 20 years ago, but it was that moment of insight, like the eureka moment, was 19 years, six months, three weeks, you know, two days and 18 hours ago. I read an article in, of Nigel's in Harvard Business Review and it was wow, that makes sense. So, credit to him you know, in terms of the industrial revolution and the nature of work. It's only two, 250 years in the north of England that we moved from our village setting into workplaces. And that too, 250 years, there's no time to alter what it means to be human. And so Nigel's genius, I think, has been crystallising so much academic scholarly work on the nature of humans into nine instincts. And just to give a, a snapshot of the nine is that we're a social being. So the important element of belonging that the nature of social groups, at least with the bright species like ours as hierarchy. So there is a pecking order and the important thing there is relative power. That our brains process information first based on emotion and only then on logic. The fourth one is that we do make snap judgments, but the significance of those first impressions is that it's our sense-making step. Loss aversion is a key motivator. We bond through chit-chat, every social species bonds. We do it through chit chat. Uh, We're up to seven now, individual self. So we have a sense of individual self that gives me a sense of myself versus yourself and an empathy and a mind reading of the other person. We do err on the side of confidence over realism that can lead us to a point of denying reality. And then the final one is that we are conscious about looking good within our social group. So we do engage in a little bit of contest and display now if we if we know those nine, that's the key part of the human condition, then the exciting thing for me back at the beginning of realization about this body of knowledge was to apply it in terms of workplace practices, and now in this latter part is sharing and teaching with others so just that's partly correcting Scott that it's not my research, you know what I put in my book is. A summary of the research, but how I'm sharing it and how I'm using it to teach other leaders.
0: Right. So it's the lens you're seeing that and applying that information through, right? So
1: Yeah, that's right. And then the way I'm sharing it and, and, and exercises I've developed and methodologies I've developed. But it's it's yeah, taking this whole body of knowledge and sharing it in in a way that leaders can
0: make sense of it and apply it. So with that as sort of a backdrop, do you th- feel that it's in our human nature to collaborate?
1: Yeah, very, very much so. Uh, very optimistic about that. In, in fact, of, if, if we think of ourselves as a social being, we're a primate, we're a social being, we can collaborate like no other primate can do. Uh, I, the, the journey I've been on the last 15, 20 years has I mean, been phenomenal. I've become friendly with Dr. Jane Goodall, the chimpanzee researcher. Now, chimps for instance, they, they cannot collaborate with individuals outside their community. They, they can't collaborate as a forest. They, they can only collaborate and they do very well within their community of up to about 50 individuals. Whereas humans, like that, that's phenomenal in that context that we can collaborate with others beyond our community, beyond our organization, beyond our group. So, Yeah, there's so much to be positive about it when we think about collaboration, humans collaborating.
0: So then if we sort of think back to the nine or the the different attributes, the instincts you mentioned, and think about what makes collaboration work, I guess, are there some that are more important than others in your mind? Yeah, I'd, I'd
1: say that thinking about the social belonging attributes, what does that mean? That has significant implications for collaborating. Uh, hierarchy, if we think of that in a sense of power and relative power. If we think about the third one I'd, I'd list as loss aversion, which is really making sense of what motivates, generally motivates people. And the fourth one would be the nature in which we go about bonding and relating to others. But that would be the four.
0: All right. So let's maybe take a look at one. I know you talked about social. The first one you listed was social belonging. And I'm kind of curious when you say talk about that particular instinct in the, the context of collaboration or a group of people collaborating, what is it that's creating the belonging? Like, can you expand on that whole instinct? And what can we learn from that instinct that will help us collaborate, I guess? So we, we are a social
1: being and, and that shouldn't be taken for granted. Some species, the number one species that I would give as a comparison is elephant seals uh-huh. uh, who spend almost their, their whole year on their own. Uh, I'm thinking elephant seals because my wife be, my wife's passionate about penguins and we've been on a journey the last 20 years to see all 18 species of penguins in the wild. And that journey took us on one occasion to the Falkland Islands in the southern Atlantic. And we were there when the elephant seals were breeding. Now, elephant seals, and in particular the males of the species, they only come to land, they're only with other members of their species for six weeks of the year. So they don't worry about collaborating. (laughs) They don't worry about social, they have no real social instinct, no real as in other than mating. Compare that to us. So our, our journey, and it's been a phenomenal and beneficial part of our journey, is that we're not soul beings. We connect with and relate to others. We're, we're community oriented. Now that becomes delicate in that we will collaborate with two types of other individuals. One knows who are part of our group. That, that's absolutely natural and we don't have to work very hard at that. And we can explore why that's the case. And then the others, the, the other group, people who are outside our community, however that's defined in each person's mind. And what's phenomenal about that is that we will collaborate with others, provided certain conditions are met, and we, we can touch on what, what are some of those conditions.
0: Well, let's go into that. Like Where I'm thinking this is interesting is because often when I'm bringing people together, say for something that I'm working on, a, some kind of a project it's almost always a group of people who don't know one another. And so they're not, they're not part of a community and you end up spending a great deal of time trying to build that community. And I think some of what we'll see through our conversation, I think, will be some of the ways that you know facilitators and people try and, I guess, speak to the instincts
1: in a way. Yeah, that's right. And that's what, you know, good facilitators know this, don't they? And they, people like you would work hard at and, and just be very conscious of establishing, you know, a sense of connection, of, of belonging. The, the, I think my, my contribution as we discuss this is that we do tend to think about you know, binary classifications, um, of them and us, if you like, in a sense of collaborating. And, and the phenomenal optimistic thing about this is that we're okay with them and us. We don't need to all become us. It's handy. It, it's handy if it is that way. Right. But the most critical thing that allows us to collaborate with others is friendly, being on friendly terms and trusting each other. So we do need friendly means. We do come in peace. It's obviously to everybody's advantage if there there must be a common interest or purpose that's causing people to be together in this environment. We do need to come in peace to be, that is, friendly. And when we think about First Nations people who had a time-strong rivalry from one group to another, they could still come in peace. They could still relate. They could still have bonding festivals and rituals. So, so coming in peace, that is being friendly, is one really important dimension, which overcomes the them and us. And the second is trust that it's hopeless to think of collaboration if people don't trust each other. And trust means being able to rely on each other and not lying to each other.
0: How does the size of a group sort of factor into this idea of belonging? Does the instinct flex depending on the size of group in humans? Because you talked about the size of the group really mattering in chimpanzees. Does it also play a kind of a similar role for us?
1: It plays a really big, a big role. The different dynamics that happens with with different size groups. That, and this again, you, you know, your your skill and colleagues who facilitate and who do this work know that you know larger groups. Larger groups are harder. We can relate to and connect with larger groups, but there's there's two significant size groups that come into play. I would suggest one is our there's something about a group of about seven and a group of about three or four, two, three or f- groups of two, three or four people, which is why, you know, in very large groups where people are collaborating or meeting or making decisions or relating, that, you know, the facilitator will not expect too much of larger groups. If there's 15, 20, 30, 50, 80 people, then that's okay for a certain purpose. And then you'd start chunking groups down, a a decision-making group of about seven works okay. Historically, that's our group of our smallest family unit upon which human societies have been built, uh, seven or thereabouts. The other interesting dynamic then is the smaller group beyond that is the group where everybody can have their say, which is in pairs, threes or fours. So even in a group of seven or eight people sitting around a table, that that's the mathematics of that for everybody to have their say and to listen and to be heard. That's too much even a group of seven or eight people. Our size group where everybody can have their say is in up to four individuals. So people will intuitively know that the dynamic of during a break in a conference when people break for coffee and they're standing around outside having coffee or they're at a party uh, standing around having a chat and a very predictable dynamic happens Which is people are standing in pairs, groups of three or four to the point that if you and I are in a group of four and a fifth person joins, within 30 seconds, one of two things will happen. The group will split off into two conversations, or one of the five now not connected into the conversation will very quickly make an excuse of going to fill up their cup or their glass and joining another group. And the significance of that is that's our Our grooming or bonding ratio, chimpanzees, they spend a fair part of their day bonding, sitting around grooming each other. We don't do it that way apart from our loved ones. We do it through our language or vocal capability through chit-chat. So it's a group of two, three or four, up to four, where there's a speaker with three listeners and there's a politeness of conversation being passed around. And in facilitation, like in my facilitation, mainly with leadership training, then a fair part of my programs, apart from sharing knowledge, is people participating in breakout groups of three or four people, because that's where everybody's going to have their say. Everybody has to be involved. The group can't leave it to others. If people, humans are in a group of six or seven as a syndicate breakout group, it's just beyond human nature for everybody to have their say in that size group. And a couple of people will leave it to the others to do the work. That's fair
0: enough. How does introversion and extroversion sort of factor into this thinking around how people show up in groups? I'm starting to think that as the size of the group shifts, that it almost becomes irrelevant whether you're an extrovert or an introvert.
1: Yeah, with that smaller smaller group, uh, it does in the, in the larger group, you're right. And that's why The extent to introvert, if we think about introversion extroversion in this case, meaning to what extent are people prepared to fight to have their say? And some of us are not very inclined to fight. We might attempt to have our say. We don't get the space to be heard. And uh, yeah, a lot of the population (laughs) will not think it's worth it. To tr- have another go, yeah, and so yeah, we know, don't we, as facilitators, that that's all coming into play as well. And so, I mean, yeah, in the smaller smaller groups, if if people are, you know, the normal apply the normal courtesies in a smaller group, it's certainly less of a fight to have your say,
0: right? So it kind of takes that element of it sort of out of the equation a little bit. So you talked a little bit about gossip and bonding and th- this idea of how. Humans have sort of shifted from, I guess, using grooming like you would see chimpanzees use, like the actual physical grooming to to more of a vocal, we're using language in this case. Is that the only way it shows up? Are there other ways, other factors that come into play when we talk about bonding?
1: Bonding is through, through doing things together, through sharing stories, through rituals, through feasting, by just standing around sharing common interests, yeah, there, there's a whole lot of things to do with bonding. So in a larger sense, yeah, those, those rituals, the techniques you, you as facilitators use is really critical of, of allocating time to do that. People who are conscious or their instincts are good about this. It isn't just bringing people together to do task work. To build in the time for the informal interactions is critical. But then if we, if we think back to the, back to the grooming in a sense of chit chat, the definition of chit chat is the non technical subjects that we might talk about. So while people are in a collaboration group and they're on task, or if in a leadership sense, if all your conversations with your direct reports or your peers, other colleagues are task technical work, then that does not constitute bonding or grooming. So the equivalent of the chimps sitting around bonding, and and they can only bond in that method, then the equivalent for us is engaging in banter or chit-chat. And chit-chat means like interest, hobbies, common interests, things that are happening in the world, just those lighter conversations, the non-task, and that we can't be bonded unless we have time and we engage the other person or the other people in in that banter.
0: So you also do, you mentioned you do leadership training as well. So I'm kind of curious the connection here that in my world, you're trying to build, like you say, time for these human moments, if you will, where people can talk about something other than whatever it is you're, you're meeting to talk about. And that's kind of about understanding who they are as people. And it gets us into back into the, connects us back to the social belonging. How does that you kind of present it, though, in a leadership context. And I'm kind of a little bit curious about, is it the same or is it is there a different flavor to the leadership perspective on it? On, on programs, I like to
1: hear several months later how leaders have applied this knowledge of human nature. And there was one leader, David, who three months later said, I've, I've fixed team tension by way of grooming and bonding. And so he told us the story which was, he said, uh, I realised on the program, that is three months before, that no wonder on my team of seven people, he said, him plus six others, no wonder we work in a tense environment. He realised, he said, that we spend no time bonding. And so what he also realised is that humans will bond in the right environment and all he had to do as the leader was establish the right environment. So he said what he did that first Friday back three months ago was to take his team out for coffee. And he said in that environment, uh, there's scholarly work that said in that environment at least 66 70% of the conversation should be non-technical, easy chit-chat. And David said from that moment on, team tension disappeared, that people engaged in the chatter which allowed them to bond more so than what they had in, on previous occasions. And by going through that bonding process, getting to know each other a little bit more, he said, and this was the significance, I think, to him, was that we realised we had a common interest amongst all, almost all the seven, which is to the point that how could you work together for some time and not realise that? Well, this group did. But the exciting thing for me as a facilitator was that David worked out what he needed to do to apply human nature and human nature did the rest. So leaders, and, and back to your the point of yeah, your, your question there, was that so many leaders, the leaders who need to make this shift, say to me later after realising the significance and the science of this point is that they realise that in the past they associated with the monday morning check-in standing around or having coffee or the or the banter that goes on before a team meeting they say in the past i associated that with wasting time but now i can see i compromised my relationships with the team and that led leads them to doing something different now
0: you mentioned one of the the pieces being around this hierarchy and and power so the beautiful thing of all these pieces you can sort of see how they're all kind of linked together how one thing touches on another and on another so what does sort of good power look like what kind of power will allow collaboration to flourish
1: yeah good good power is where power is used for for good outcomes uh, the significance of power just a, a lead in that leads to answering the good power is that with a social species like ours Individual members of a group have, have different power. That, that, that's like a really important acknowledgement and acceptance that, and, and power is not bad, by the way. Uh, for social harmony, it's incredibly important that with, with primates or with humans that there is differences in power. And so we, we function, you know, generally because of relative power and, and, but that's about then power being used well by those in authority or the leader of an organisation. Now, in collaboration, what's what's really significant is that people who come into the room who might have high power in their organisation that they belong to, they now need to contain that power And, and obviously the facilitator makes sure that happens. It's good as facilitators if we don't have to worry about the people who come into the room, if you like, who are high power it's good if they're conscious and really aware of their position that they then contain, they use their power well, in fact. But if not, then the facilitator has to be more dominant. So that, that, that's one part of power bubbles, bubbles along as a subtext. People in high power need to use their power well. The, the other side is the flip side of power and dominance is submission. So for each person who has relatively high power, There's somebody else who has relatively lower power. In other words, in a potentially submissive position. What I think is really important about that point is to make sure individually we retain our personal power, that we don't feel or certainly don't allow someone to dominate us so that we're not pushed around, that we make sure we are respected, that we push back that we won't step away, that we try to hold our own and and obviously in collaboration our facilitator is there to help us. So then in that context, good power builds social harmony. It means good power, we're now talking about the relatively more powerful person, respects the other person. They ensure each person is respected, that everybody is heard, that no one's interrupted. Um, The high power person knows they need to control that, that power and use it good to collaborate. And, and not to diminish other people. That, that's what good power means to me in this sense.
0: When I think about the power piece, it, what comes to my mind is often, the like you said, the organizational power, the, the executive that's sitting in the room with a, a group of staff, let's say. And in that case, the power is really evident. But then what I've often tried to do is sort of focus on people's experience. So everybody has a, has a unique experience that gives them essentially a level of their own power. So that is their own power as I see it and kind of trying to remind people that everyone has a different view. Is that similar to what you've been seeing in some of your leadership groups Just people start to understand what others are bringing to the table, whether it's a perspective or a knowledge or, or what have you? Is that, does it show up that way for you as well?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's fantastic what you're saying because that enables each individual, doesn't it? Everybody is bringing something that's very respectful of each individual. Each individual's then a participant in, in the collaboration and, and the process. Everybody has worth, just different. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important dimension.
0: Do you also see, my mind goes back to the chimpanzees. I'm trying to, I'm picturing you know, a group of chimps doing what we're talking about here, sort of a, a level setting on the power. But is that what happens? Or is, is this a uniquely human thing that we're talking about from your experience? I'd read a couple of Dr.
1: Jane Goodall's books before I, I met with her. The night before I met with her, I was excited as a five-year-old before Christmas or <laughs> before Thanksgiving. And one of the com- early conversations I had with her was to ask her about uh, Figan. Now, Figgin was the uh, alpha chimp of the Gombe group that Jane Goodall observed, researched from her work in the 1960s, Figgin was the alpha, the leader for most of the 70s. And through my leadership lens, when I was reading about her observations about Figgin, it sounded like he was a really, really good leader. And so, you know, if if we did a leadership profile of Figgin, he seemed to be a really constructive leader. So I said to Dr. Goodall that I confirmed with her that, yeah, Figgin seemed to be a really good leader from her observations. And so I said, what, what was it about Figgin? And she said, he was really powerful and he used his power well. He ensured social harmony. So it's again, it's a statement that says, you know, power is not good or bad. It's how you use power. Right. Now, by Figgin being powerful, I should say, see, it's different to being a bully. Figgin was not a tyrant, Figgin's nephew. Frodo some years later became the Alpha, and he was a tyrant and Jane Goodall said he, he was a tyrant, even as a kid, so no wonder he was a tyrant as a leader so power isn't tyrannical it's just using your relative position for good for using it well, and so that becomes you know in a leadership sense because the leader does should have relatively higher power, but use it for good you be be comfortable in your powerful position. And, and you use it for good, contain others who are being disruptive or disrespectful, assert yourself appropriately. Now, it's more complex in collaboration because, you know, people are coming into the room for this particular purpose without the positional power that they normally, normally have. If they were a, an on-task group within their own organisation, then, you know, the power, power positions are all organised already it's different with collaboration but a really important subtext that it doesn't disappear you know hopefully the people who are using power well will come into that collaborating space and operate you know differently respectfully use their personality style as using that position they're now in well but then the facilitator sort of just needs to be conscious I guess of That underlying subtext that happens. One way, for instance, I'm really conscious, most of my work is leadership training. And so, you know, people come into the room, let's say it's within one organisation, so there's some more dominant, powerful person in the room. Uh, One one thing I use to equalise power in the room is the use or non-use of mobile or cell phones. So it's really important in a learning, collaborating space that cell phones I say to the group you know once we once we're knowing each other a little bit not the first thing I say but certainly within the first 10 minutes in terms of admin and uh, emergency evacuation and other things as check-in as mobile phones and I'll ask which is really ensuring that phones are not only on silent but also off the room off the table now there's a bit of a grumble and uh, particularly if there's a high power person in the room they might go through the theatre of turning the phone over, but it's still on the table. But then, if someone looks at their phone during session, I'll I'll just just pause. We'll just pause for a moment, you know, for the last little bit of texting or whatever. So what, what I'm what I'm partly doing in that is appropriately asserting myself, but also equalising power in the room because the person who's probably persisting. In fact, they're they're reacting to my asserting myself and they're not prepared to be submissive at that moment. So they're asserting themselves going through the theatre without necessarily knowing it. But I'll hold my own and politely just require that as without calling it a rule in the room. Uh, I think that can be a bit tacky, but just knowing that there's this subtext bubbling along underneath, equalising and as a facilitator, just being appropriately assertive and not being submissive to someone else in the room
0: right yeah i've come across that as you said the theater of the phone and the <laughs> having to be connected and also sort of removing yourself from the conversation because you're busy doing something else so there's there's
1: yeah which is that power and you're more important and you know the prime minister wants me or the chief executive wants me i better take the call <laughs>
0: Yeah. So the one instinct that we hadn't touched yet that um, you mentioned with relation to collaboration was, was loss aversion. And this one is, I have to say, it doesn't readily sort of, I don't readily connect loss aversion with collaboration. So I'm curious how you how you connect.
1: Sorry, I just took a sip of water because I'm really excited to get into this topic because uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't see the connection initially with like things in my world was like in change management. So... I grew up being in leadership and HR. That I grew up with the statement or the belief, the mindset that people resist change, and that, that's said so often and so confidently that as a young professional, I, I was I accepted that and led to believe that that was what happened. It was what happening. But then at one stage in my career, I became head of HR in a joint venture that IBM formed in Australia between another large Australian company and our major telecommunications company and we were then managing a number of significant transitions where people would change employer to join the joint venture company and what what I was noticing is that yeah sure enough most people most staff didn't like that change and that was fair enough that you know they chose to work for a government department and the IT group being asked to join IBM it wasn't for everybody but there was a handful of people you know on each of these Transitions who seem to welcome the change, which then just caused me to think there must be something different happening to people resisting change. If that was true, then everybody would have been resisting. There must be, therefore, something else happening. And, And I had an intuition, I didn't name it as loss aversion, but then in coming across this body of knowledge 20 years ago, the important thing about loss aversion goes to human motivation. And what we'll come back to in this point is how we can misread what looks like people resisting change. So, so motivation, humans are more motivated by keeping out of harm's way, so of avoiding loss. Uh, the scenario that, that I share with people to get into this, I'll share with, with you, Scott, is that I, w- I once heard about a story, it was shared by the editor of my books, uh, of this small business of eight, eight staff owned by a husband and wife team. And one Monday morning at quarter past nine, the eight employees were told by the husband and wife owners, could you please stop work? We've got important news to tell you. And they invited the eight employees to come into a kitchen area where they have their breaks, very unusual, Monday morning or quarter past nine on any day to be asked to come to an impromptu meeting. When the eight employees had gathered around the table, the husband and wife owner said, thanks for stopping work. We've got important news to tell you. We've had a fantastic quarter financially this last three months and we'd like to share our financial success with you. We've got an envelope here with your name on it for each person. Inside your envelope is $500. What we would really appreciate is if you could leave work right now, go spend the money, but please come back by at least 3 o'clock this afternoon and tell each other what you spent your $500 on, which is a really nice story. But the point through the lens of human instincts is... What goes through your mind when I said, please stop work, we've got important news to tell you? What, what, when you smiled when I said, please stop work, and then the $500, what went through your mind?
0: Oh, I was thinking we're, it's a layoff kind of situation. You're losing your job or something. That's right. Something tragic is going to happen. Yep. Yeah.
1: Overwhelmingly, and that that's to do with loss aversion, because what's happening at that moment is we're compelled to make sense what's happening. We don't have a lot of information to go on. Mm. And overwhelmingly, for the number of times I've told that story and of the reactions, overwhelmingly we can predict that people will assume the worst and that's loss aversion because what's happening, even if that's 30 seconds, when I get up from my desk, I go to that kitchen area and I sit down, I'm compelled because I'm a thinking, classifying, I'm compelled to classify, make sense of is this good or bad. And at that moment, if I can't yet make sense of it, I don't know whether this is good or bad, then I'm going to prepare myself just in case of the threat, the loss, the negativity, the hurt and the harm that might come with that. And I start to assume and then now you could imagine if, if that goes on for a while, like you're going through you know, a restructure or you know, what, what's the purpose of this collaboration? We're going to a meeting next week or next month You know, what people are starting to imagine, starting to make stories up in their own mind. Uh, Fair enough. That's what we humans do. So what's happening is that we're compelled to make sense. Making sense is that we classify in binary alternatives on a variation like, is this going to be good or bad? Is this for gain or loss? And at the moment, and as I go through that process of classifying, if I can't yet make sense, I don't have enough information to make sense then the default is to assume the worst. Now, in my world of change management, that's that's been the misreading of the human response. So it looks like people resist and resist change, but but it's not. And so what, what I found in the team I was with and then later on, you know, putting the scholarly work and explanation around it, it leads to phenomenal opportunities for leaders. To, to manage change well, most, most changes are fine in organisational life, they're for really good reason, not often involves negativity for any one individual. If it does, then you need to manage it according to the negative impact on that one individual. You reduce the timeframe in which people are uncertain, the majority of people are making up the worst story around the change. And then in a collaboration sense, I imagine, and I, I don't work in the space that you work in, Scott, that then it needs to be covered off because if people are left assuming or wondering and what impact it might have on them and the group that they represent, it needs to be acknowledged and covered off. And you and others, just by, yeah, seeing uncertainty through loss avoidance, then that leads to you, you, you'll you take it in all sorts of ways in, in your own work practice
0: yeah and it speaks to that idea I think of of telling people what's coming I mean it, it sort of in my head I'm going back to sort of the standard tell people what's going to happen then tell them when it's happening and then afterwards you tell them what happened all to sort of carry the story you want them to have because like you say otherwise they'll make up their own story and it will always tend to the negative
1: yes yeah, I think so and also just to understand or acknowledge that Even if prior to the collaborating practice or interventions, you know, everything can't be covered or coming into the room on the first occasion just to know that people, even if they're not able, the participants, even if they're not articulating, that that's on their mind, it probably is. You know, so there's a whole process that, that can be sensitively gone through and just acknowledged or brought out into the open and can be talked about and and also to know that you know people in the room are representing others who aren't in the room and therefore the people in the room are influenced by their conversations that have happened or will happen after now and that they have different dynamics and concerns that they in turn need to to influence and be conscious of
0: when i think about collaboration i often think about i break it into three parts and a lot of what we've been talking about today has been around one of the parts, at least, and well, two, actually. I always talk about there being an overarching purpose. I mean, you can't collaborate unless you have some reason to do it. And then the second portion is about bringing a group of people together. It's not a solo event, and all of the dynamics that happen there. But the last piece that I think is what makes collaboration unique is this idea that it's a creative endeavor. It's about kind of one plus one equals three. You're trying to build from people's ideas. And I'm curious what your thoughts are around how human instincts kind of lead us in that direction of a creative endeavour or support us in a creative endeavour together.
1: Yeah, my, my investigation or, or thinking about this has been around that people are creative when we feel good. I'll, I'll give a reference in a minute, an uh, influential paper on this for me, that people go about their normal day with emotion being applied, we can't take emotion out of it. In our various interactions and events that we come across every day or in a collaborating space, we're forever classifying those. You know, is that uplifting or not? Is that was that good or bad? And the creativity impact is when we feel good means that we're being uplifted. Our motivation is enhanced, you know, we just get that energetic thrust. When we're making progress, the paper that, that was influential to me is was a paper called "In a Work Life" in Harvard Business Review by, by the authors, Amabile or Amabile, A M A B I L E and Kramer, and however you you know, might, I'll, I'll give you the reference later, and you can communicate that as part of this uh, podcast. They found the authors found that we're 50% more likely to have creative ideas on days when we feel good, Hmm. on the good days, (laughs) and that that impact lasts for 48 hours, for up to 48 hours. Now, what that means to me in a leadership sense is that leaders who help people make progress, who make the environment a safe environment, you know, they're giving, yeah, clarity of purpose, like you say, uh, camaraderie, your togetherness, people, people are getting on well, the leader is giving people time and space and resource to, to do well, they're removing barriers and all those sort of elements, then, then we're uplifted. We're feeling good and, yeah, these authors' research says that that in itself uh, people were 50% more likely to have a creative idea and, and that made sense to me that thinking about through my career, yeah, you know, when when those sort of environmental factors were covered, Yeah, you'd be walking around having a walk after work and you're still, the mind's still going and the mind's still pinging and then you're thinking about other ideas. So in a collaborative sense, with establishing that sort of together, collaborative, purposeful environment, then human nature by itself looks like we're going to be more creative. So it also means that we could waste our time on creative interventions if the environmental factors aren't looked after. Because if people aren't having good days, then we could waste our time and energy and money, creative interventions and programs, whereas if we do the the good things and people are having more good days than bad, then human nature means it looks like we're going to be more creative anyway.
0: It's interesting because I often rely on one of my personal tactics that I use is often to play the smartass <laughs> in room and, and just kind of poke fun in kind of a tongue-in-cheek kind of way at, at something we're doing or really kind of bring the the levity almost to the situation, which just brings everybody up, right? It kind of lightens everything up. And I think it speaks directly to what you're talking about in terms of feeding creativity. And I'm looking forward to digging into a little bit of the research behind this. This is going to be fun. So,
1: Yeah, so I'll give you a reference to the Harvard Business article, plus they've written a larger piece, which is a, a book called, I think I've got this right, The Progress Principle. And I'll send you some information
0: on that. Okay, well, I'll make sure that that gets plugged into the into the show notes for the podcast. So we've covered a lot of ground. I'm curious if there's anything that we haven't covered that you would like to add. I think that's maybe yeah,
1: looking at sort of my list at the beginning, maybe just the role of, of emotion. The, the, the research says that we primarily process information first based on emotion and we can't take emotion out of it. So as facilitators, when we have people in the room who are overwhelmingly priding themselves by being logical, analytical and rational, it's good just to know that as as humans, unless we're suffering very specific brain damage, that we emotion is always bubbling along. It's the first and primary way we process information, even for people who aren't acknowledging that that's what's happening. So that's just, I think, yeah, just as a, in terms of was there one final thing yeah i just I just think that the role of emotion bubbling along is really critical
0: yeah yeah it's it's always first to the finish line <laughs> that emotional <laughs> that emotional response, yeah, yeah.
1: that's right <laughs> yeah.
0: I always ask for book suggestions, I know you've already you've given one already and and a couple of other pieces, but is there a book that you will give often give as a gift or another it doesn't have to be a book, maybe a reference, something that you give uh, aside from your own books, which I will. I'll be making reference to you as well in the show notes. So,
1: Looking at or listening to one of your other podcasts, I anticipated this question. <laughs> and uh, I was wondering if I could answer the question by saying, what, what book would I gift to myself? What book would I give to me? Absolutely. And, uh, okay, yeah, because uh, so apart from reading books about human nature, I'm, I'm really attracted to books about characters. So I find myself reading a lot of biographies the last biography I read was on George Washington and my conclusion from that was how lucky the United States was to have a selfless ethical person as their revolutionary leader and their first president. So I love just that, seeing what influenced people you know, through their life journey. And then because the theme of characters, even in my fiction, reading of fiction, I, I love books that focus on character more so than plot. So my favourite author of fiction as Anthony Trollope from the 1860s. <laughs> he, writes, he writes primarily about their, their period romance books, can you believe, at least for me. <laughs> uh, but I love, uh, he, he wrote, I think it's 34 novels and I've read th- 33 of them and you swear, even though you know the plot, the outcome's going to be that the, the, the couple are going to be sort of hap- happily connected and, and married. Uh, you swear that the people he's writing about are real characters, and I, I just find myself totally absorbed by yeah reading about characters.
0: I'm a fiction fan myself, and it's interesting how sometimes the most the realistic sort of descriptions of people and the, as you say, the characters are also some of the most frustrating. <laughs> like you just like okay, get on, come on, like. <laughs> but
1: that's great, isn't it? If if the author can paint the character to a point when you're you're so connected to them and so emotionally moved.
0: Yes. Mm. You know, I, I I would be remiss if I didn't ask if you had a story or a little anecdote that you would normally share from your you're working with Dr. Goodall. Is there something that comes to mind from your the few times you've worked with her that sort of is, is a story you like to tell or something you learned specifically from her?
1: Yeah one one story I like to tell is on on gossip and grooming. So few years ago, before we were due to speak at a conference together the following day and we were chatting about this subject, we are talking about bonding and she, she said very emphatically, I punched a fist into a palm, Andrew, two chimps cannot possibly be bonded if they don't engage in grooming. It just beggars belief that without that practice of grooming, whatever that is in, in chimp case You can't be bonded unless you engage in grooming. And so I I do share that story with leaders and then I extend that to saying to leaders, so you cannot be possibly bonded with your colleagues unless you engage in chit-chat. It just beggars belief to think that that for a species like ours would be possible. And and that's part of that, yeah, for leaders realising that, yeah, this does play a, a critical role. In our relationships with others,
0: and it speaks to how we actually need to build time in into collaboration for that very thing, just to to go off script and have a bit of a, a bit of uh, grooming time.
1: <laughs> yeah, it does, and and so you do things like make sure that the breaks are long enough, uh, make sure that the breaks involve just standing around uh, chatting. That, that's probably easy for facilitation, so that yeah, you, during lunch you don't you know, have finger food rather than sit down served. This was on my mind just recently. I attended a funeral of my dearly departed father-in-law after a long, happy, healthy life. So that's not the purpose for (laughs) engaging. I'd set up the room so that with the people at the wake, there was going to be plenty of room to stand around and chit-chat. During the service, the helpful um, organisers of the catering had come in and set up tables with chairs throughout this whole space. <laughs> so I came back in to check how things were going in terms of food and drinks being laid out. And I uh, oh, no, our, our bonding space has been impacted because there's going to be a very different dynamic of people sitting down, at least it was in groups of four, but then people are going to be probably sitting down for some duration rather than the easy mingling. So with the help of a few people, we just quickly move the tables and chairs out, except for some around the corners for people who had a need or preferred to sit down. And it opened up all that lovely chatter space so that with finger food and a drink, people could easily mingle in their groups of two, threes or fours. And so in a facilitation sense, you know, really important just to keep that possibility of, of, easy, of easy chatter being able to occur and then humans will look after the rest.
0: That's right. People can uh, express their instincts or, or follow their instincts, I guess, and, and follow, they're, probably, yeah. they're better at it than, uh, than us trying to make them do it. So, I just wanted to say thank you for your time today. It was uh, it was a fantastic conversation. I think we could have gone in a couple of other directions. Like we maybe there's another conversation in the offing where we can talk about collaboration and things like empathy and mind reading or or first impressions, that kind of thing. So, thank you for your time today. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Scott. So you've just listened to my conversation with Andrew O'Keefe, and I'm sure you've had the sense, like I do, that we only scratch the surface in our discussion about how human instincts show up to influence how we collaborate. Andrew emphasized that our human instincts as a social species give us the ability to collaborate, abilities that other species just simply don't have. It brings to mind a conversation here on the podcast that I had with Jorge Aviles, where he suggested that we need to get to our core humanness and remember that we're all connected as humans. Andrew's work has really helped ground that sentiment in our evolutionary roots and in our core human instincts. We covered a lot of ground in today's discussion, and I'll be thinking more about many of the insights that Andrew shared, and in particular, I think this idea that loss aversion is a kind of a default mode for people and that that really shapes how we frame a collaborative conversation and how we communicate about what collaboration is meant to do and is doing throughout the entire process. It's really interesting as well how our instincts play a role in our emotional state, which in turn affects our ability to be creative, which is a key part of collaboration. You can be creative when you feel good, he said, For me, this is a really important point because the power of collaboration comes from its ability to be creative, to come up with unique solutions to complex problems. And this point really emphasizes all of the things that we might need to do to make people feel comfortable. Or in other words, what we need to do to consider people's instincts and the role of those instincts on their emotional state. I really enjoyed this conversation with Andrew O'Keefe and I hope you did as well. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed the conversation, please be sure to leave a review and share it with a friend. Happy collaborating. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list, so interesting things like blog posts, Upcoming training or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating.